and welcome to another episode of Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Uh, today, I am joined by Anne Walsh, a partner at Corporate Immigration Partners, one of the premier immigration law firms here in the United States. Anne, thank you so much for hopping on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, and we have a lot to get into today, particularly around the H-1B uh, cap season is coming up uh, in yeah. uh, March. Uh, but uh, since this, this is your first time on the show, I just wanted to hand the mic over to you, uh, welcome you to the show, and just learn a little bit more about your background as an immigration attorney, how you got into the field, and kind of um, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So presently at about 12 years with corporate immigration partners, um, really love the firm and the people and the mission. I got into immigration through um, advancing my Spanish skills and uh, developed into Know Your Rights programs and pro bono um, visas and held on to that interest through law school and was lucky enough to get a dream job out of law school and practicing in this space. Nice, nice. Where'd you go to law school? Uh, Marquette. Marquette. Marquette okay. University. Mm -hmm. And you are you're based in uh, Wisconsin, correct? Yes, nice. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Born and raised, or have you moved around? Born and raised. Yep. Nice, nice. Uh, we talked about it yesterday. Uh, I, I can't, I can't pass up the opportunity just to remind our audience that Anne is a Packers fan. Uh, the Packers yep. did lose this prior weekend to the 49ers. Uh, yep. But as a Bears fan, that's basically my Super Bowl because my team is on, in the dumps. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, I, I'm taking the it's better to have uh, loved and lost approach than to have never loved at all. Yeah. Whereas the Bears fans, you kind of hang out in the ladder over the last exactly. 20 years or so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully one day, but you know, it's it's uh, I've got to the point where I've just accepted that, you know, this it's almost like the Packers are just uh, Jordan Love now third third quarterback's looking Looks like in really a row. good. I don't know how I don't know how you guys do it. It's uh <laughs> it's, it's mind boggling. I know, and I'm so skewed. I think that's normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. Uh, the The state of Illinois, there's a lot of good teams here. Uh, you you did your undergrad at uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, correct? UW. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh, we got a good Big Ten rivalry there. But at the end of the day, kind of uh, you know, if Wisconsin makes it far, I'm definitely rooting for them with that Big Ten, um, Big Ten, Big Ten friendship. And uh, yeah, so uh, sports. And we could talk all day about sports, but oh, obviously cool. that's not why we're here. <laughs> um, so yeah, and let's let's hop into the H-1B, um, I thought we would just kind of start with some an, an overview of, of sorts of the H-1B with, you know, CAP coming up um, and for listeners who, you know, may not be super familiar with it um, or just looking for a refresher. So, Anne, can you can you talk a little bit more about the H-1B and its role in the immigration system of the U.S. and just kind of how it works? Sure. So big question, uh, obviously a very relevant question. We are in H-1B CAP season as we call it. So the H-1B is a work visa type. It is called the specialty occupation visa. It's an employer-sponsored uh, visa. And specialty occupation, what that means is the position that the employee is being sponsored for, the job, must require at least a bachelor's degree in specific fields of study for performance of the role. And then uh, uh, following that, the individual must have 
the degree that's required or a sufficiently similar degree. And the requirement is a U.S. bachelor's degree or its equivalent, which is really important because that or its equivalent language does not apply to all visa types. So it does expand the number of individuals that can qualify. And when you say employer sponsored, what does that mean? Yep. Yeah. So uh, there has to be an employer who's sponsoring the individual. It can't be self-sponsored in the way that other visa types can be. So while we might be trending in a more friendly direction for uh, business owners to sponsor themselves, that hasn't been the case. That was recently um, suggested in uh, proposals, but at present, you know, it's really employers who are sponsoring these individuals. It's not uh, business owners. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. So uh, maybe comparing that and I'm going to bring in a pop culture reference. Uh, so listeners apologize uh, for me bringing up the television show, but my wife is very much into uh, a show called 90 Day Fiance, sure. where um, an individual in the in the U.S. most of the time uh, wants to marry someone and to bring that individual over. I believe it's on the K-1 visa. Yep. Um, so how does, if we're comparing the H-1B and K-1 employer-sponsored versus self-sponsored, how does that look like? Yeah, so K-1 is the fiancé visa, obviously, 90-day fiancé <laughs> is the show. And so uh, as the name would tell you, the fiancé, the U.S. petitioner, U.S. Uh, citizen, is going to petition for their foreign fiancé and uh, eventually get that individual over to the U.S. Uh, it's not inherent for that individual to have work authorization within the K-1 visa. They thereafter get married and apply and can receive work author authorization. In contrast, the H-1B is a work authorized visa. It requires the employee to work for that petitioning H-1B company in a role or a significantly similar role to what was listed in the petition. So it uh, is for work and uh, <laughs> work only. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Anne, you mentioned the H-1B lottery. Uh, it is coming up. Um, in a nutshell, what is the H-1B lottery? Yeah, so the number of new H-1Bs available per year is 85,000. And it's subject to a lottery system. There are 65,000 H-1Bs available to the entire group of registrants. And then there are 20,000 H-1Bs that are reserved for registrants who have a U.S. master's degree or higher. So 85,000, depending on how you're familiar, how familiar you are with the H-1B, it might seem like a lot. Unfortunately, it's not. In years um, and years, there's been the lottery, which means way more people are applying for those 85,000 H-1Bs. Like in la last year, I think it ranged from like about 10 to 15 percent uh, selection. Years past were more friendly, maybe about 30 percent on average. So unfortunately, employers who want to sponsor individuals for the H-1B visa, they first have to go the lottery most most often most employers need to do that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that eighty five thousand number that's been consistent for quite a while now i feel um, it mm -hmm. hasn't changed at all is that correct 
Correct. Yep. It's been 85,000. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that there hasn't been any movement um, to potentially increase it? Yeah. So immigration is a really hot topic within politics. And therefore, we haven't seen immigration reform pass through Congress for quite some time. It, it seems as though it's just so contentious that it hasn't been able to progress. Various bills are introduced, they get debated in committees, and they largely don't get out of there. So unfortunately, we haven't seen uh, changes. We've seen a lot of great suggestions, but no changes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned uh, just a few seconds ago that there are some employers who are potentially exempt from the H-1B lottery. Can you uh, go into a little bit more detail on, on, on who is exempt? Yeah, absolutely. So there are H-1B exempt employers, and those are universities and their related nonprofit entities, nonprofit research organizations, and government research organizations. So those employers are not subject to the 85,000 limit. They're not required to register in the H-1B lottery, which takes place in March. They can file for these H-1B exempt petitions at any point of the year. So it's really a very nice advantage. And similarly, you mentioned that the H-1B lottery is is for uh, new mm -hmm. beneficiaries, petitioners, correct? Yes. So what if someone is in the U.S. on, on an H-1B already? How long, what's the duration of that visa? How long can they stay in the country? And, you know, do they have to re-enter the lottery at any point? Sure. So if a registrant is selected in the H-1B lottery, the window of application opens April 1st, and the employer is then going to submit that full petition. H-1B employment begins October 1st for a brand new individual who's been selected and approved, begins October 1st. And no H-1B can be approved for a duration longer than three years. So the initial H-1B is at most a three-year H-1B. Thereafter, the individual can be sponsored for another three-year H-1B for a total of six years. When we hit six years in the US on H-1B status, that is what we call the max out date. That's the maximum amount of time to be on the H-1B with a big ex exception. Um, H-1B employees can be employed beyond those six years when they're sponsored in the employment green card process. When they get to what's called an I-140 immigrant petition approval, they can extend the H-1B thereafter. So Green card sponsorship is really important to H-1B employees because of that six-year max out date. Right, right. So, so yeah, I guess, can you expand on that a little bit, the path uh, the path of someone who comes into the U.S., uh, enters the lottery, I guess, uh, comes into the U.S., works on the H-1B, and the path toward permanent residency? Yeah, so the H-1B is friendly to permanent resident residency, permanent um, green card sponsorship, because it is a dual intent visa. Um, that means it allows persons to intend to stay in the U.S. temporarily, should they choose, or permanently. Practically speaking, that means when they get to the final step of the green card process and are filing their I-485 biographic application for the green card, 
they have a, a much less burdensome uh, travel restriction than do other visa categories. They need to be in the U.S. when the I-45 application is filed. But so long as we confirm that USCIS has receded their application, they can depart the U.S. if they have the need. That's not true for other visa categories. Other visa categories need to stay in the U.S. until they receive a travel permit called the advanced parole. So that's a really great benefit for, for H-1B being dual intent. And again, as I said, H-1B is going to need sponsorship for a green card to avoid that six-year maximum. Um, alternatives, you know, to that six-year maximum, if they aren't sponsored, are to change visa types, if that would be an option. But that's often not an option. Some employers come to us thinking that sort of anything is an option. If I want this employee badly enough, we can make it work somehow. And we try desperately, but we have a limited range of options available to us. So green card sponsorship is important to H-1B visa holders. Right, right. And those alternatives also have their own requirements that right. uh, the, the individuals must meet. Yep. So, Anne, how do you see companies typically utilize the H-1B? Yeah, in all different ways. The H-1B is an adaptable visa type. Again, the definition is the position must require at least a bachelor's degree in specific fields of study, and the individual has to have that degree or its equivalent. So we work with a huge range of positions uh, for the H-1B uh, engineers, financial, scientists, uh, teachers, doctors, lawyers, graphic designers, um, lots and lots of professions qualify for the H-1B. And it's also a flexible visa type in a way because the employee can qualify with the equivalence of a related U.S. bachelor's degree. That allows us a little wiggle room we can assess if the uh, individual has the equivalence through a batch, excuse me, through a foreign degree, through a combination of foreign degrees, a combination of foreign degrees and professional experience or professional experience alone. So we do have the ability to work with the individual and uh, make them qualified as, as strongly as we can. So it's adaptable. It's flexible. Um, and employers are using it across all industries and positions. Yeah. So, that's, I mean, it, it is, it seems like it's one of the most coveted visas, but, you know, to kind of how we, you started, it, there's only 85,000. And uh, I think it was last year, there was like over 700,000, you know, initial registration. So to your point, it's only like a 10 to 15% chance of being selected. Um, so I guess, Anne, uh, as we kind of uh, close out this first section before heading into some uh, updates regarding the H-1B, um, if you had to uh, uh, bust one myth about the H-1B, what would that be? Um, any sort of myth that it's easily accessible. Unfortunately, it's not. So in terms of employers considering registering individuals for the lottery, start early, You know, start certainly the first year of employment because having been sponsored in a prior year makes it no more likely to be to be selected in a in a subsequent year. Mm. Awesome. 
So, and we are recording this uh, towards the end of January. Um, somehow it's already almost the end of the, the first month of the year. <laughs> um, and we've seen quite a few uh, major updates coming from the government, uh, not only this month, but, you know, towards the end of 2023. So I thought we'd break these down. Um, and I also feel like, and let me know if I'm off base, but I also feel like this is, it, we haven't seen the amount of updates regarding H1B in quite a while. Right. And so the first one, um, it's, it, uh, just cleared a White House review on that what is a proposal to increase uh, U.S. CIS fees. Um, again, U.S. CIS is a fee-funded agency, uh, and the last time fees were increased was 2016, so almost 10 years ago. Uh, according to reporting from Bloomberg, Bloomberg Law, uh, U.S. CIS would increase H-1B registration fees from $10 to two hundred and fifteen dollars mm-hmm. so off the bat and why is uscis increasing the h1b registration fee by so much right so when uscis implemented the h1b lottery registration system in 2019 they didn't really know what to charge because it was the first year so they charged ten dollars and said they would gather data over the years to come regarding their operating costs and the fee necessary to run this program. So they have done so and apparently decided that it is $215 per uh, registrant. So yeah, a significant jump. Uh, That said, prior to 2019, we didn't do electronic registration of uh, H-1B candidates. Instead, we had to submit the full paper petition to USCIS in order for an individual to be uh, entered into the lottery. USCIS then selected from the paper, um, they counted 85,000 selections. And we found out if the individual was selected by receiving a paper notice back. So The electronic registration was um, welcomed warmly. Of course, this fee increased less so. It still, though, is better than the prior paper process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I think, so I joined Envoy Global 2018. And so two years, two years would have been two years. No, one full year of uh, the, Mm -hmm. the, yeah, one full year of the full of prior um, lottery. And I just remember, yeah, that January, February, March, yeah. you know, just everyone working on the petitions. Excuse me. Yeah, we then, used to um, take, yeah, we used 1st. to stack them up, uh, all <laughs> shipped and ready to go and take a picture every year because it was just yeah. such an enormous volume of, right, of right. shipments. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess if you're comparing the two from, you know, the attorney perspective, which one do you like better? The electronic registration by far in terms of uh, previously the wasted resources in uh, uh, employer cost in preparing full H-1B petitions with, you know, maybe at that point, 30% selection rate. And then, uh, you know, our time, our effort, we do H-1B, of course, but we also spend our time on in a lot of different ways supporting our clients. So, it makes much more sense to, um, you know, be preparing those petitions for individuals who are selected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, so back to the fees. So the fees, um, 
do we know for sure if the fee is increasing for this upcoming H1B uh, lottery that starts in March? Yeah, we don't know for sure yet. We're waiting sort of at any moment for the rule to be published so that we can learn the details. So as of January 24th at about 1030 Central, we don't know, but we could know in an hour. Right, right. Totally. Or because it's the government Friday at 5 p.m. Um, yes, <laughs> that's <yeah>. more accurate <laughs> based <Yeah>. on history. <laughs> um, in your, uh, I guess, you know, when talking with colleagues or, you know, in, with, in strategy calls with, with clients, um, what are the conversations like, you know, regarding the, the jump from $10 to $215? Do you, are there differing thoughts, opinions? Yeah, I mean, no employer wants to see the fee increase. Uh, that said, last year, as you stated, there were, I think, about 750,000 registrations for these 85,000 spots. So employers that have bona fide sponsorship for individuals that really, really intend to employ these individuals, some see the increase as necessary so that employers who really don't intend to employ the individual, but what the heck, it's $10, let's put them in, uh, won't be doing that as often. Um, and employers really value these H-1B candidates in terms of meeting their business needs. Uh, they need these individuals as employees. So they, of course, uh, have mixed emotions on the increase, but um, you know, will continue to sponsor employees. Uh, related, there was there was some news uh, regarding other types of fee inc fee increases, in particular premium processing. Uh, first things first, premium processing. What is that, and how does it work? Yeah, premium processing is an extra fee that can be paid on some visa types for fifteen calendar day processing from USCIS. So it has been uh, two thousand five hundred for most. Um, of the petitions and applications I work with. And as of February 26th, it's increasing by $305 to 2805 uh, So premium processing is expensive. Uh, that said, unfortunately, it's been necessary over the last few years for a lot of employers and beneficiaries because USCIS regular processing times have ballooned. Uh, you know, employees who are, for example, sponsoring an H-1B transfer, they can't wait months and months for the approval. They need it quickly so that they can onboard that employee and have them fill uh, whatever gap they're going to be supporting. So they ultimately have to apply premium processing. In addition, uh, so so we have two major fee increases. Um, you know, they had they haven't been increased uh, in in quite a while. And with the with regards to premium processing, I believe USCIS framed that as like you know due to inflation, you know we're increasing premium processing ultimately. And how do you? What are your thoughts on the fee increases? And do you think ultimately, you know, it might hurt? Uh, you know, looking at the budget now, companies looking at their budgets now, but down the line, increase, uh, allow USCIS to hire more staff to increase those processing times to introduce further improvements. Yeah, obviously, I emphasize with employers in the higher costs. 
That said, I'm a cautious optimist, um, both at work and at home. And if USCIS, in fact, better manages their workload from these fee increases, that's going to reduce petition and application processing times. And hopefully, then employers don't have to include premium processing as often. You know, if we could get down to just a couple months processing in contrast to presently many, many months processing time, then employers shouldn't have to add premium processing as option uh, to process um, and get their employee onboarded. So maybe it'll balance out. Maybe it'll at least be less impactful, assuming that USCIS, in fact, better manages its workload from these increases. Gotcha. Yep. Moving on to another big update, uh, this time from the uh, U.S. State Department. Uh, they are planning to launch a pilot program to allow certain H-1B visa holders to renew their visas stateside. Uh, we started hearing grumblings of this uh, last summer, I think, um, and then uh, heard more in the fall and then ultimately in the winter. Um, this is actually, uh, I think it's going to be implemented soon, but Anne, can you talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. this pilot program? Yeah, this is exciting. So prior to September 11th, there was domestic, uh, also called stateside, visa renewal, such that uh, visa employees can uh, could submit their passports by mail and receive a new visa stamp back in their passport. They could stay put in the United States. The visa stamp is their travel document in their passport, which they need to be valid when they're entering the U.S. Uh, since September 11th, it was removed, and this introduction in January of 2024 becomes live uh, very shortly here, um, is, is the first time it's been available again. So it's been long awaited, and while this pilot program is small, it's a welcomed start. Mm -hmm. What are the eligibility uh, requirements for this pilot program? The eligibility requirements are long. Uh, the <laughs> present pilot is really limited. You have to be renewing an H-1B visa, only an H-1B visa, and you have to have received the prior visa during certain time periods from Canada or from India. So it really is limited. The field of eligible applicants is, is pretty narrow. There are other requirements. Those are the big ones. Um, so certainly we're hoping that this pilot program goes well and that the, uh, narrowness of the program is removed. We'd like to see way more, uh, individuals be able to qualify. And ultimately, what are the benefits of this program and, you know, how do you envision, you know, employers and, and their foreign national population potentially utilizing it, uh, in the future? Yeah, so I can share foreign nationals are really excited about the domestic visa renewal option. They then don't have to leave the U.S. for the sole purpose of renewing their visa stamp. Uh, you know, we work in a uh, worldwide um, work community and people are traveling all over the place. So the ability to get the visa stamp done in the U.S., not have to leave, 
is really helpful. They can then freely travel when the need comes up, which could be on short notice to work with a client. You know, there's lower cost if you can simply mail in your application versus travel to India and uh, the flight cost. You know, maybe you don't have family or friends to stay with, you know, the hotel cost, the disruption in work, being gone from work for the time it takes. It can take weeks to get a visa stamp and family. It may be that the primary H-1B visa holder needs to get a new visa stamp for work travel and the dependent spouse and children don't need to. So that results in the H-1B visa holder being gone for weeks, potentially. I have three small kids. My husband better not leave for weeks. Um, that's just way too much. So it, it, it is really <laughs> burdensome to, to mm-hmm. go get the visa stamp. Right. Um, maybe thinking back to the height of the, of the, of the pandemic, do you think the, that the State Department bringing this program back is a somewhat of a response to that? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. They had to learn how to work with uh, the ability to do much less in-person appearances. And so they did expand during the pandemic uh, what's called interview waiver eligibility. So the ability to uh, submit simply a paper application. That said, you still had to be in the country uh, where the consulate is. So, you know, U.S. Embassy Chennai, you had to be in India to submit that paper application. You could not mail it in from the United States and receive the passport back. So, yeah, I think it likely did help with the pilot program launch, um, but they were still starkly different. Yeah, gotcha. Another update and from us cis uh this one is a little bit more recent from the newsroom uh they plan to launch what they're calling organ organizational accounts in february 2024 uh which allow which will allow multiple individuals within an organization including companies or other business entities and legal representatives to collaborate on preparing H-1B registrations. Kind of a mouthful, but Anne, can you break down this upcoming uh, change from USCIS and the the goal of it? Yeah, absolutely. So USCIS is introducing online filing capabilities for H-1B cap cases this year. Um, If this podcast was taking place like maybe four or five hours from now, I would know more because the first information session from USAS on this is uh, early this afternoon. So uh, Eric, we might have to uh, circle back and do it. Part two. Uh, Yep, part two. Um, So online filing capabilities are huge to employers and to us. I love the Dunder Mifflin paper companies of the world, but it would be more optimal for us to be able to upload a petition and skip the mail, skip the printing, skip the scanning, uh, skip the mailing. Uh, the same with USCIS. I mean, they, ha- they have these massive mail rooms that have to receive and scan and process, um, you know, the, the paperwork, the checks, and they would certainly benefit from being able to, uh, you know, apply those individuals' 
completing the, that function elsewhere. So yeah, we're, we're excited about it. Awesome. Uh, all right. So yeah, we'll, we'll let you attend that USAIS webinar and then we'll hop back on uh, <laughs> so you can break down that and how it's, how it's going to work. And so I guess just to confirm, this will be in place uh, by the time this year's H1B lottery opens up. That's what they're telling us. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, so, and quite a few updates uh, from, you know, the government uh, this year. Um, what, you know, what do they signal to you, all these recent updates, what do they signal to you about the current state of the H-1B visa program? Yeah, the recent annou announcements, I, we're trending in the right direction with ease of use and reducing wasted resources. Both were improved by electronic registration and both would be improved by online filing. We're also improving equity in the H-1B lottery through other proposed changes, uh, most notably uh, the proposal that this year USCIS will select by beneficiary identity and not registration number, because last year the number of registrants ballooned significantly from about, gosh, I think maybe 400,000 to about 750,000. And that was largely because some individuals were registered uh, five, 10, 15 times. So they had a much higher chance of selection and likely were not in fact going to be sponsored by all of those uh, 15 employers. So in terms of equity of selection, we're getting better. That said, ultimately Congress needs to raise the 85,000 H-1B limit or otherwise make the H-1B more available. As an example, there have been suggestions that, you know, STEM positions would not have to go through the H-1B lottery. Um, you know, certain U.S. degrees would not have to go through the H-1B lottery. The selection rate is low and it's frustrating. And other countries ultimately receive the benefit of lots of talented U.S. educated and trained uh, individuals because of it. Uh, so, Anne, as we look to wrap things up um, in maybe last few minutes, we can spend just talking about general H-1B uh, preparation. What tips, general tips and words of wisdom do you have for HR teams to navigate this upcoming H-1B cap season? Start early. You know, if that's the day you're hearing this, uh, start then. Uh, it, it takes a while at a number of employers to collect the full list of individuals who would benefit from being sponsored. Use a trusted legal team. Um, make sure your team is evaluating and ready to share with you alternatives to the H-1B cap for employees not selected because it's likely that more employees will not be selected than are selected, unfortunately. So, your legal team needs to be preparing for uh, notifying you of any alternatives for your uh, group. And then advocate for your employees, uh, support them. The H-1B cap season is often an anxious season for H-1B uh, candidates. Some are going to end up thrilled with selection. More are going to end up disappointed because they're not selected. 
So simply know that and um, support them through that because it can be a, a season of anxiety for these employees. Appreciate those uh, words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And anything else uh, top of mind regarding H1B that uh, we maybe didn't hit on? Gosh, I mean, we could talk about H1B <laughs> on and on. Um, I think we covered a lot and we have policy that is evolving right now and we're waiting to learn more and um, it could come out now, it could come out uh, days to now. So uh, yeah, stay tuned. So, you know, make sure that your legal team is keeping you informed, you know, whether they maintain a blog or a newsletter or a chat with you on the phone about it. It's important to stay up to date because we are in a changing environment with regard to the H-1B. Awesome. Well, and it was great talking with you this morning. Uh, appreciate you hopping on the show. Um, you are with Corporate Immigration Partners. Uh, maybe I'll just turn the mic over to you, talk a little bit more about CIP, the work that uh, your firm does and uh, where people can find you. Yeah. So with regard to employment-based immigration, we do everything under the sun. Um, we have individuals who focus in specific industries or with specific employer types. And we have others like me who do uh, kind of the work more broadly. We partner with Envoy Global, which is an outstanding uh, platform, online platform, where all interested parties come together to work through the case most optimally. So the uh, HR representative or immigration coordinator, maybe the employee's manager, the employee, of course, and our team. So it's a really great way to process our casework and take care of our clients and their employees, um, you know, holistically through that through that platform. Uh, regarding where you can find us, uh, corporateimmigrationpartners.com and Envoy Global, EnvoyGlobal.com. We partner in everything that we do. So if you reach out to one of us and ultimately want to talk to the other, we can very easily find <laughs> them. So um, if anyone's interested in connecting with us, uh, we'd love to do the same. Awesome. Appreciate it. Well, Anne, thank you so much for hopping on the show. Uh, Have a good rest of your day, and we will uh, get together for part two. Thank you. (laughs) Sounds good.